Um, so yes, Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean sorry. Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Amen. ...video which was on YouTube, and it was a documentary which was... It was really a propaganda documentary. It was made in the early 1960s. In order to describe what they saw as the ideal... Uh, of normal family life in the city of Sydney. And uh, having described the, the weekday life of a normal suburban family in their lovely new house in the suburbs, the presenter with his, what I guess was a BBC-influenced accent, they seemed to always be like that in the 1960s on TV, uh, he said that on Sunday in Sydney, most people go to church, then they enjoy a Sunday roast before spending the afternoon at the beach. How's that, eh? Did you get that, by the way? Most people go to church and then they head home for the Sunday roast. 
that was uh, that was life. That was society. That was culture in in Australia in the late 50s, early 60s, or so the uh, propaganda, thank you, would have us believe. And I believe that's true, that that was the case. Uh, society has changed a lot since the 1960s, hasn't it? In fact, the 1960s was the, the decade of change. And uh, 50 years later, we'd have to say that the opposite is true. The Sunday roast, that's gone. The idea that most people go to church, well, there's far, far fewer Australians who go to church on a regular Sunday. But Christians have been around for a bit longer than what I've been around. Tell me that in some ways, the church of today, though smaller, is actually healthier. How can that be? Well, the reality is that if uh, someone is active in church these days, like all of you are active in church, that you're more likely to be active in church because of a deeply held personal Christian conviction uh, rather than uh, that this is just what everyone else does, uh, culture, society and so on. Uh, not to say that uh, people who went to church in the 1950s and early 60s only went because of cultural reasons. Uh, indeed, there was a vibrant gospel faith. Uh, the 1959 Billy Graham crusade was a result of much prayer and we reap the benefits of that uh, still now through leaders who were converted during that time. But um, particularly in some denominations, including our own, a lot of church going was because of culture and tradition, much more so than it is today. However, having said that, it is still always possible for someone to be actively involved in church for reasons that really are not about the gospel. Um, the attraction of religious ceremony, the uh, self-righteous religion, um, these are things which will always play some part in the life of what they call the visible church, that which we can see of the church. And it often goes undetected. Um, people can be sitting in a congregation every week, year after year after year, and they look like they're Christians, they act like they're Christians, but actually perhaps are not Christians, and uh, it remains undetected until the gospel of Jesus is, is brought to bear on their lives. In fact, sometimes within uh, churches, this can be, be the cause of conflict. Uh, when the message of sin and judgment and the redeeming work of Jesus, the need for forgiveness and repentance, when that message uh, comes into conflict and clashes it, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it clashes with the, the beliefs and the practices of the person who is really just a church-going non-Christian. Uh, now, Jesus experienced this. He experienced this with the religious leaders of Israel uh, in his own day. And one of the most stunning examples of this is found in Luke chapter 11, 
verses 37 through to 54, which I'll be able to preach from you if um, someone will get me a Bible. I've just noticed there's no Bible here. <laughs> oh, thanks, Tim. I'm really feeling quite helpless today. <laughs> no water, no Bible. Uh, okay, so let's all open up our Bibles at that passage at Luke 11, 37 to 54. And what we see here is that Jesus was actually invited to come and share a meal at the home of a Pharisee. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why on earth would a Pharisee be uh, inviting Jesus to come to his home and share with him a meal? Uh, it, it might have been curiosity. It might have been that he was genuinely interested. Um, he, he might have been trying to trap Jesus. We, we don't know. The, the passage doesn't tell us. But what the passage does tell us is that Jesus did something, or rather he didn't do something, which greatly surprised his host. In fact, the, the word that's used there can, can be equally translated, not as surprised, but that stronger word, and that is amazed. There was something which Jesus did, or didn't do, which amazed his host. And that is that he didn't wash before having his meal. Now, um, <clears throat> my mother's sitting in the second row here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, mum would tell me, Scott, wash your hands before you eat. But that was for, it wasn't for religious reasons, was it, mum? Certainly not. That was for hygiene reasons. This has got nothing to do with hygiene. This has got to do with religious observances. Now we need to take a step back here for a moment and think about who the Pharisees are. Uh, the Pharisees were a religious movement within Israel. Uh, they were men. Uh, at the time of Jesus there would have been about 6,000 Pharisees. Uh, they were not priests, they were lay people. Their movement had developed during that time which we call the intertestamental period, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, about 400 years the Bible doesn't uh, actually record for us. And the origins of the Pharisees were that they took the view that the Babylonian exile uh, came into effect because of Israel's failure to obey God's law, which is, is true. That's absolutely right. And they actually were committed to the idea of, of honouring God, of of glorifying God, of, of, of obeying God's law and they didn't want to see Israel fail to obey God's law. So what they did was this. One of the things which they did was that if, if you consider God's, book, God's law as being like a body of law, what they would do is they would set up a, like a perimeter fence, multiple fences around that law with other laws so that uh, in order to break one of God's laws, you would have had to have broken several other laws in order to get to breaking one of God's laws. So it was to try to preserve Israel from breaking God's laws. Does that make sense? Understand that? And, and that's a good thing. But the, 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 these other laws that they'd established were man-made laws. And that's the case here in this passage. Um, in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 12, uh, if a man was 
ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and he went and touched a clay pot, like what you'd have in the kitchen or at the dinner table, the clay pot had to be destroyed, had to be smashed because it was now considered to be unclean. So in order to avoid that kind of situation happening, what the Pharisees did was they had a law that said every single time that uh, you're going to eat, whether you're ceremonially unclean or not, you'd have to go and go through a ceremonial washing every single time so that you didn't stand a chance of actually being unclean and touching a pot and the pot having to be smashed as a result of that. Now, that's the context here. It's important to note that God's law, the law of Moses, did not require the washing uh, for a man to wash himself before every time that he ate was only if he knew that he was unclean. God's law didn't require it, and so Jesus didn't do it. Now, uh, the, we're not told that the Pharisee actually said anything about this, but Jesus knew what his host was thinking. And have a look at how Jesus responds in verse 39. In verse 39, Jesus says this, he says, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Now, um, in our culture... It is not normal when you're in to, to criticise our host. You come around to my place for lunch and you start picking fault with the food and with my manners and, you know, it's not going to end well, I can assure you. <laughs> right? It won't be pretty. It's not appropriate in our culture. No, I, I take that back. I would be gracious. <coughs> This Pharisee, in a sense, was gracious because he kind of copped this on the chin uh, because uh, if, if it's not culturally appropriate in our culture, imagine how appropriate, inappropriate it would have been in Jesus' culture. But sometimes the issue is so important that the issue itself supersedes proper etiquette. And this issue was very important very important indeed. The Pharisaic movement had started with very good intentions, but they had lost their way. When you eat food, don't you hate it when you get the food out of the dishwasher, you're about to put your cereal in the bowl, or you get your bowl out of the dishwasher rather, <laughs> you're about to put, and you, you discover that inside there's bits of food that's still caked onto the inside of the bowl that the dishwasher just didn't get in there. Ever happened in your place? It happens in my place. Look, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter to me how clean, how spick and span the outside of the dishwash, dish was. If inside it's got, still got the, the wheat bix caked onto it, I'm not going to use it. <laughs> All right? Now, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, that is actually what these Pharisees as people are like. They are like that kind of a bowl. On the outside, 
their religion is impeccable. But inside, they were greedy and wicked. You know, a few chapters later on in chapter 16, verse 14, remember when Jesus said that you cannot serve both God and money? Right? Well, Luke inserts an editorial comment in that and he says, the Pharisees who loved money sneered at Jesus. So it was well known that the Pharisees were actually... They're actually greedy. They're actually lovers of money. Um, in uh, Psalm 51, David, you remember when David was uh, caught out because of his adultery with Bathsheba and he came back to the Lord and he confessed. In Psalm 51, David prays, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's the inside that counts, isn't it? It's the heart that matters. And if the hearts of the Pharisees were as clean as they wanted Jesus' hands to be, then instead of loving money, they would actually be loving people. Instead of accumulating money, they would be generously giving money away. Jesus actually says that the food you've got in that bowl, why don't you go and give that to the poor? Now, sadly, in some churches in Australia, uh, they teach that God wants you to be rich. You come across that? God wants you to be rich. Uh, They they say that uh, you're... You're a child of the king. You're a prince or a princess. Princes and princesses don't live in shacks. They live in palaces. And so God wants you to... That's about heaven. That'll be life for us in heaven, but they want that now. And they teach that God wants you to be rich. And it actually is a way of of fusing religion with greed. And surprise, surprise... They attract a lot of people. Let's be careful about that. Then in verses 42 through to 44, Jesus now exposes three things about the Pharisees and he he introduces each with the words, Woe to you. Now when he says, Woe to you, that's a warning, isn't it? He is warning of the disaster which will befall them uh, through the judgment of God because of how they are living. Three warnings. First of all, in verse 42, the problem was that they majored on minors. Uh, God's law uh, in the Old Testament required that a man would give one-tenth of his income to the temple. So if he harvested his crop, one-tenth of the crop would go to the temple as what's called a tithe. We all know about that. The Pharisees, though, they were so meticulous about obeying the the one-tenth law that uh, they would go to their, their herb patch in their garden and they would take one-tenth of the herbs and they would go and put that in the temple treasury as well. 
we grow chilies at our place in the backyard. It'd be like me going and calculating the value of my chilies and then declaring, declaring it on my tax, tax form uh, as accessible income. You know, I mean, you've got, in one sense, you've got to hand it to the Pharisees. You know, they're, they're trying to do the right thing and they, they, they're doing it to the, to the nth degree. There's nothing particularly wrong with that and they should be commended for it. But there's something which they're missing in their obedience. What is it they're, that they're missing in their obedience? What does it say in the passage? How about justice and love for God? Which, when you think about it, what do you think God cares more about? One-tenth of your herbs? Or that you treat your neighbour with justice and that you love him? What does it say in the prophet Micah? Uh, what does the Lord require of you but to, to do, do justice and to walk humbly with your God? Uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't, need your, he doesn't need your herbs. He needs your heart. That's what he's after. They were religious, but they didn't love God. Instead, they love themselves. And we see this because there's a play, in, play on words in verse 43. Because uh, whereas uh, in verse 42, uh, Jesus says that you neglect justice and the love of God, in verse 43, in the next woe, what is it they love instead of loving God? He said, you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, we have a joke in our family, or as the kids were growing up, sometimes, you know, when they were, the kids used to tease me about something, and I'd, you know, pretend to be offended, and I'd say to them things like, there's just no respect for the clergy these days, amongst the younger generation. Well, the Pharisees seem to thrive on respect, on being respected in their community. They loved it. Uh, they loved the best seats, the seats of honour in the synagogue. We actually don't have any seats of honour here in our church. But do we treat people differently if they're of higher status? Or do we want to be treated differently? Do we want to be treated as if we've got higher status? They loved um, being the, the centre of attention in the marketplace. Uh, they loved it when people would, in their long flowing robes, people would come up to them and, and greet them and, and everyone would see that was going on and know that they're a you know, special person in the community. They loved that kind of thing. And you know what? We need to be so careful, don't we? We need to be so careful that we don't utilise our church involvement as a means of gratifying our, our, our desire to be respected. Uh, respect is something which we earn, isn't it? Respect, uh, there's people whom we respect because of their humility, because of their character, because of their love for God. But if we're actually seeking to be respected and we desire to be respected and we use church to gratify that desire... It can happen, uh, especially when upfront roles or 
positions, uh, official positions are involved. Uh, the, um, one of the things I've learnt over the years is that uh, people who, who serve very quietly, serve behind the scenes, serve even doing the, the menial tasks around the place, they're often the best people to have in upfront roles and positions in the church. Because what is it that they've already shown? They've already shown that it's not about them. It's about loving God. It's about serving God's people. So, let's move on, shall we? In verse 44, Jesus then says this. He says, Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Now, here's an interesting picture, isn't it? Um, the Pharisees thought that by their meticulous obedience that they would be like the example, the shining light, that they, they would lead others to being clean in God's sight. But they are actually the opposite to that. Uh, listen to one of God's actual laws. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. And it says that anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Got that? Now, what's the problem if the grave has no headstone? You can walk on it and you don't even, you don't even know it, do you? You have no idea that you're walking over someone's grave if it's unmarked. And the Pharisees are like that. Unmarked graves. People are connecting with them all of the time. People are going to them for advice. People are meeting them in the marketplace. People, and yet, far from helping others to be clean, by their example of greed and self-love, they're actually making others unclean. And the others don't even know it because they are unmarked graves. It's difficult to imagine a more scathing indictment of the Pharisees than these words of Jesus. But notice this. Check out verse 44. In verse 44, Jesus actually does not, with his woe to you, he does not specify the Pharisees. In the first woe, he said, woe to you Pharisees. In the second woe, he said, woe to you Pharisees. In the third, row, third woe, he says, woe to you. And he doesn't actually specify the Pharisees. It's only implied. And it's this omission of the word Pharisees which unnerves one of the other guests who's at the meal. He was not a Pharisee. He was, he was what's described as an expert in the law. Let's read about him, verse 45. Verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. It sounds like he's hoping that Jesus is going to correct himself and say, oh, no, 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 sorry, I didn't mean you teachers of the law, I only meant the Pharisees. But it's more like, well, if the boot fits, wear it. And instead, Jesus now turns the heat on him. The experts in the law, they're sometimes called scribes. And these were, these were the men who 
uh, who, who wrote things down and they would have copied the scriptures. So there's no automatic publishing of printing of scriptures in those days. Everything had to be hand copied, hand printed. And that was a meticulous job and they, had, they were meticulously scrupulous about doing that so that they kept accuracy as a premium. And of course, if you're handwriting the law, then over time you're going to get to know the law pretty well, aren't you? And you're going to become an expert in the law. And so these men, they became experts in the law. They, they preserved the law. They, they taught the law and they ended up also applying the law because uh, they often became members of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council. But yet far from helping to know God through the law, what they did was they, they loaded people down with lots of other laws. So... It wasn't just the law of God in Moses, but all this case law that they accumulated over years and years and years. And they loaded people down with this dreadful burden of every aspect of life being regulated by some law. It made it impossible for people to, uh, to live in the way that God intended them to live. They taught law, but they didn't teach grace. Now, many churches, even today, teach that the, the right way to get to, to know God is by obeying laws. Um, go to church on Sunday. Go to communion, like we're going to have later on today. Um, <clears throat> get married in the church. Have your funeral in the church. Uh, obey all of the laws of the Ten Commandments and you'll be right with God. That's not the purpose of God's law. Paul uh, explains more clearly the purpose of God's law in the book of Galatians. The purpose of God's law is to show how perfect God is. And so that when we match ourselves up with the perfection of God's law, we see that we're actually not like God, that we fall short of God's glory, that we fail to obey God's law. And so the law actually helps us to understand and to to realise that we're actually sinners who fail to obey God's law and that the only thing which we can turn to is mercy, that we need a saviour. So the law convicts, of it, convicts us of our sin and actually in that sense points us to Jesus. That's the purpose of God's law. Now, uh, this particular lawyer would have been a smarter lawyer if he'd kept his mouth shut and said nothing. <laughs> because uh, now Jesus uh, turns the blowtorch on him because he's got a couple of specific uh, of woes that are tailored specifically for the teachers of the law. Uh, we see the first one in verses 47 through to 51. It seems that some of the teachers of the law were building or were were renovating uh, some elaborate terms for long-dead Old Testament prophets. Now, why would they do that? Uh, last year, uh, Alyssa and myself were uh, in our ancestral town 
of Bundanoon in the Southern Highlands. And uh, with Cassie, we went and we found the grave of my great-great-grandparents, Alyssa's great-great-great-grandparents. And uh, all armed with our cleaning utensils and our gardening utensils, we, we were zealous and we got to work uh, cleaning up their grave, making it all spick and span and looking really nice. Now, why would we do that? Well, we did that because we are their physical descendants. If you dug up their bones and you sent it off to a lab, the, the results would tell you that they've got the same DNA as Alyssa and I have, or similar. The science teacher in the front row can argue with me about this later. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't you? Right? Now, in the Old Testament, some of the prophets were murdered because they boldly and truthfully spoke the word of God. And these experts in the law, they considered themselves to be the spiritual descendants of those prophets. And that's why they built tombs for them. But in a shocking revelation, Jesus now informs them that they've got it all wrong, that they are not the spiritual descendants of the murdered prophets, that in actual fact they are the spiritual descendants of the ones who murdered them. Your ancestors, said Jesus, murdered the prophets and you build their tombs. You're just finishing up the job. This is a... Um, uh, this, this is a, a scorching passage, isn't it? It's absolutely scorching. It's, uh, it's, it scorches because it, it's burning away any sense that we could have that we can get right with God through ceremonial obedience and, and any sense that we, can, we might have that uh, by simply obeying laws that we can be right with God. It's a scorching passage. And it scorches not in order to destroy, but in order to expose so that we might actually repent. The, the Pharisees, they were supposed to help people to be ceremonially clean, but by their false religion, they made people unclean. In the same way, the experts in the law were supposed to help people to get to know God, but in verse 52, in the final woe, Jesus says that by their false religion, rather than helping people to get to know God through his law, that they're actually hindering people from getting to know God. People could spend all their time with them and be ignorant of God. The whole passage is quite shocking. It, uh, it begins, if you have a look, in verse 37 with uh, Jesus, we're told, uh, entering in, he went into the house of the Pharisee and then it finishes in verse 53 where we're told that Jesus 
went out. He went out, outside of the house. So it's a unit in itself. And it's, it's ironic, actually, because Jesus has just accused the teachers, the experts in the law, of being of the same spiritual DNA as those who opposed the prophets of the Old Testament and murdered them for this, because they spoke the word of God. And they could have repented. They could have said, why do you say that about us? What is it that connects us with those murderers? What do we need to do about that? This was their opportunity. But instead, they do exactly as their ancestors would have done. They prove their spiritual DNA. Luke tells us that now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they now began to oppose Jesus fiercely. Friends, these were deeply religious men. The Pharisees were experts in ceremonial righteousness. The lawyers were experts in legalistic righteousness, but none of them actually knew God. And in the same way, even though things have changed in Australia, we can't assume that because someone comes to church that they're actually a Christian. We can't make that assumption. They might come for other things. People might come to church for tradition or for music or for ceremony or for friendship. They might come because their family comes, their husband brings them along, their wife brings them along, their parents bring them along. They come along because their families always come along to church. And by the way, this, that's, that's all good. Those are good things. I love the music in church and We've got some great traditions and love the friendship and it's great that we've got families coming and people might think that by going to church, even taking the Lord's Supper, that somehow that makes them right with God. I know people, I know people even within this congregation who have attended church all of their lives but have only become Christians in recent years. And uh, sometimes when they've told me about that, I've said, hang on a moment. What? You're saying you just became a Christian? I thought you were always a Christian. I thought you'd been Christian for decades. And they say, no. I was a churchgoer. But now I'm actually trusting in Jesus. The one who, unlike the Pharisees, was fully clean the one who, unlike the lawyers, was fully obedient to God's law, the one who died for us as the perfect sacrifice for our uncleanness, for our disobedience, for our sin, the one who, through whom, we are righteous through faith. We are righteous through God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Now, just to wrap this up, when uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul knew that uh, uh, well, everyone who he wrote to in the Corinthian church, they were all churchgoers. They were all part of the church community. If they weren't, he wouldn't have written to them. But 
Paul knew that they may not all be Christians. And the words that he spoke to them may be exactly the words which we need to hear as well. Examine yourselves, he said, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So my question, therefore, is have you truly placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a churchgoer or are you a Christian? Let's pray. Father, this is, a, in one sense, a very painful passage. Uh, it is so scorching, but we know we need it. Father, we uh, pray that you would uh, sear away from us uh, any sense that we could be right in your sight through ceremonial obedience or legalistic obedience. Help us to know, Father God, that our, our only hope is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for anyone here who hasn't committed their life as yet, Father God, that uh, would work in their hearts and this would be the day. Father, we pray for all of us that you would protect us from starting off well, but like the Pharisees, ending poorly. Help us to always remember the basis of our rightness with you is through the shed blood of Jesus alone. And we pray that because of that, that we would be people who love you and who love our neighbour. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.